You are listening to the Pariah Podcast, a fantasy adventure in the kingdom of the Midlands. I am Philip Norville Joe Carroll, author and narrator. And this is Episode 2, A Beautiful Day for a Walk. Keo, his mother shouted from the kitchen. Shelby LaCour brought something by for you. On the back porch, Keo stood above a large wool blanket spread across the boards of the veranda and examined his work. On it lay three linen undertunics, three dark green pairs of woolen hose, a black wool tunic, and a waxed linen overcloak with hood. Besides the clothes were few objects, a candle stub, flint, and a tinderbox, a dozen sheets of writing paper in a thin leather folio, a pen with three nibs and two small bottles, one empty and the other corked and filled with ink powder. Keo's mother insisted he write, and often. Neither his sister nor his brother had written to the family much while at training. Writing home is encouraged by the training staff to ensure families aren't unduly worried about their children while in the king's service. However, after a few letters telling family of the routine activities of camp life, most trainees valued their meager spare time too much to spend any of it writing about their mundane and repetitive tasks. Major events, such as earning a leadership position or when the trainees have hatched their eggs, are events of record, and the camp leadership sends such announcements home to help maintain a positive public opinion about the King's service. Keo's family had gotten regular government updates of Celine's advancement. However, Sleed was too busy being social to advance at leadership, or to write home on his own behalf. Documents hung on the wall for both of the children, declaring the hatching of their tiger hawks. All young people in government service, whether it was the Public Services Corps, the regular military, or the Creature Handler Corps, received a signet ring upon induction with which they could seal a letter and send it without charge through the government courier system. With 13,000 young people going into the king's service each year, there were always couriers passing through towns to bring correspondence. Keo stepped into the kitchen, where his mother looked at a wrapped parcel on the table. Is Shelby gone? Keo asked. Yes, she dropped the package and said she had to go. What is it? Keo picked up the package. What else do you think the liqueurs would send? It's got to be a new pair of boots. I think they give every kid headed off to the capital a new pair of boots. Oh, good. I was just looking at all my stuff, and my boots are pretty shabby. But I don't think I'll wear them until I get to camp. Do you think I really need to go all the way to the capital? I know I'm going to be a creature handler. Everyone around here knows it. I would save myself 400 miles of walking if I just went directly to camp. His father walked in from the sitting room and said, You know if you did that. Your sister would send you right to the capital to get tested like everyone else, and then you'd probably miss the testing days and just go straight into the infantry. Seems like a big waste of time to me, Keo grumbled. His father continued, And I'd say you'd better start putting some time in those boots and wear them on the wagon ride to the capital. If they're not broken in properly, you'll be hurting the first two weeks of camp. If I have to go to the capital, I'm going to do like Sleed did and walk there on my own. His mother picked up one of the boots and examined the sole, shook the boot at him and said, If you're going to walk like your brother did, you'd better hit the road in the next few days. It took him nearly three weeks. 
Keel closed his eyes and squeezed his chin, imitating how his father acted when making a difficult decision, and said, "'Okay, I'm leaving in the morning. "'That won't give you a chance to go into the village "'and tell all of your friends goodbye,' his mother said. "'That's five miles' walk in the wrong direction. "'I'll save ten miles if I just head to the southern highway, "'and nobody will miss me anyway. "'The boys in the village are just a bunch of jealous wimps.' "'Maybe the boys are jealous.' but there are also a few girls who are going to be sad they didn't get a kiss goodbye. If Shelby had known you were going tomorrow, she probably would have stayed to give you the boots herself, she added. I'm sure there'll be plenty of girls in the capital, he said, waggling his eyebrows. Well, you'd better behave yourself then. Your sister told me she'd keep an eye on you for me, she said, sounding much more serious. Okay, once I get to camp, I'll behave myself, but right now... I have to figure out how I'm going to carry all this stuff on my back. He ducked back out onto the veranda. The sun had shone for only a moment over the jagged edge of the distant, impenetrable mountains on the far horizon before dark clouds leading a storm front blocked out both sun and mountains. Keo kissed his mother goodbye and gave his father a firm hug before he pressed the wide-brimmed hat firmly onto his head and they mounted horses to ride as far as the road. Winter struggled to keep its tenuous grip on the world and a light flurry of snow powdered the brown fields around the orchards. At the track, running from Peeker's village in the swamp hills south to the southern road, Keo saw blocky outlines through the gray mist and snow. Neighbors from nearby, and from as far away as the village, gathered on the track and sang traveling songs. When they saw him and his father, they all broke into a cheer. A number of boys who had routinely picked fights with him, only to have their noses bloodied or their arms twisted until they begged him to stop, were there to cheer him on, or to tell him good riddance, no more competition for the prettiest girls. Speaking of whom... Brooke Dunegan stood on the bed of a wagon, wrapped in a rabbit-skin shawl. Her straw-blonde hair, which normally floated about her shoulders like corn silk, hung limp around her neck, wet from melted snow. Next to her stood Shelby LaCour, a few years older, a few inches taller, and not quite as plump in the most noticeable places, but still unmarried. Keo sidestepped the horse right up next to Brooke, and pulled on her arm until she fell and sat side-saddle in front of him, knocking his hat to the muddy trail. She wrapped one arm around his waist, hugging him and kissing him on the cheek. "'I'll wait for you, pining away, saving myself for your return,' she said, and made kissing motions with her lips, though she didn't get close enough for Keo to sneak one in quickly. "'I'm sure you would,' he said, dramatically rolling his eyes. "'The problem is, Brooke, I'm going into the Creature Corps, I won't be back in five years. The Creature Corps is for life. You don't know that, Thod blustered through swollen red lips. Maybe one kid out of 500 actually gets chosen for the Creature Corps. You'll probably just end up pushing a broom in some capital slum. The boy laughed hard enough for snot to ooze from his nose. He sniffed and wiped it on the back of a crusted sleeve. Another young woman suddenly appeared on the wagon bed like a jack-in-the-box. Brooke, the new girl said, thrusting her hand at the rabbit-wrapped blonde. Confusion knitting her brow, Brooke reached forward and took the other girl's hand. 
The darker girl planted her feet against the rail at the side of the wagon, bent her knees, and with all her strength pulled the smaller girl from Keo's lap. Brooke tried to maintain her balance but lost her footing on the slippery boards of the wagon and fell onto her backside. The new girl quickly dropped into the empty place on the horse next to Keo. Eva, nice of you to see me off, Keo said with a wrinkled smile. I figured this would be my last chance, she said. I've waited two years for you to try and kiss me, and now my time's run out. She grabbed him by the neck and planted a kiss solidly on his lips. When she finally backed away, Keo could see Brooke looking hot enough to melt the snow for ten feet around them. The mayor and a few other adults had come as well to see him off, mostly parents who had sent their own thirds away to the king's service. All had returned after their five-year duty, as none had joined the creature handlers. There was a pride in their eyes and a mutual understanding between them for what it meant to send your child to the capital. Keo thanked them all for coming to see him off, dismounted from the horse, retrieved his hat, and shook the hand of each boy and man. Shelby LaCour gave him a quick hug and a peck on the lips, while Brooke remained scowling in the bed of the wagon. "'I'd best be going before the weather gets any worse,' Keo said, with a wave and struck out toward the southern road, his bundled bedroll beneath one arm. When he was almost too far away to see them, he stopped and looked back at what remained of his childhood. His father shook hands and shared padded backs with the other adults, Brooke and Eva stood side by side with Shelby behind and silently looked his direction while a few boys had already turned back to the village and were nearly lost in the misty snow. Keo raised his hand again in a weak salute, turned to crest a small rise and descended into a new phase of his life. On the highway. The cold wind picked up as Keo followed the gradually descending undulations of the cart track toward the southern highway, almost 15 miles away. In his 15 years, he had only traveled this route all the way to the highway and then west to Offenton a few times. The directions were so simple and the paths well marked, it never occurred to him that he may become lost. He traveled along the road, light hearted despite the increasingly heavy snow, with only mild anxiety about the journey ahead. If he could keep his pace, he should get to the highway before sunset. Light wind and flurries of snow blew at him from the west, while the sun was lost to him in a consistent gray fog. Traveling up and down endless identical hillsides of dead yellow grass and dustings of snow had a hypnotic effect until time and distance faded into the fog. The first village with an inn was five miles west once he reached the highway. There may be a farmhouse or wayshed before the village. If he had to, he could spend the night sleeping in a sheltered ditch. He'd spent many nights on the cold ground watching over sheep in the fields. Granted, whenever there was snow, the sheep were in the barn. His problem was that inns along the highway were paid by the kingdom to board and feed the young ones headed to the capital for king's service. Planning for that, Keo carried very little food. Around noon, or so he thought, Keo stopped to eat a cold meat pie his mother had packed for him. Snow fell heavier as the afternoon progressed and began to cover the trail, turning the previously manageable path into a slippery nightmare. Keo had to slow his pace to keep from slipping. 
The fog and snow persisted as daylight faded. Night would soon be upon him, and he hadn't yet reached the highway. As the light faded, it became too dark to see the trail. All day, Keogh had walked the cart tracks, side-by-side paths, cleared of grass by countless cartwheels, and knew to arrive at the paved highway he only needed to remain in one of the ruts. The wind blew hard from the west as he felt his way along the wagon rut with the toes of his new boots. He shouted as he fell forward onto hands and knees, spilling his bedroll onto the snowy grass between ruts. Thinking he must have tripped over a stone or other object in the path, he resigned himself to slowing his pace even further. He crawled to his feet, hugged his bundle with both arms, and took several more steps before tripping again and tumbling to the side of the trail. Keo scrambled on his hands and knees, grasping at tufts of dead grass with one hand while trying to hold on to his bedroll with the other. His toes failed to gain purchase on the slick, frozen ground. He felt himself slowly sliding down a gentle slope. He was off the track, disoriented in the dark, and knew he couldn't go on. The harder he tried to climb, the more he felt himself slipping away from the cart track. After years of working on the farm, Keogh's back and shoulders were broad and strong, baling hay in the autumn, climbing apple trees, and walking miles to the far pastures and back gave him strength and stamina. However, the cold wind, his sodden clothes, and continuous walking had taken its toll. His thighs were chafed and his toes pinched by the new boots, and when he rolled over and tried to dig in his heels for traction, his thighs and calves cramped. He needed a place to spend the night, and he didn't have many choices. He couldn't stay where he was, exposed on the hillside, the wind freezing snow to his woolen hose. He could unroll his blanket and wrap up in his cloak, but he feared he would lose the rest of his bundle on the dark slope. Instead, he crawled sideways on hands and knees, hoping he would eventually find a level place. Thinking he had found such a spot, He brushed his hands along the frozen ground to clear away any pebbles or tufts of dead grass. There was nothing to clear away. Only rough, frozen ground was felt oddly smooth through his mittens. Keo removed a mitten and felt the ground with his bare hand. It wasn't frozen. It was brick. He knelt on the rough paving of the southern highway. Keo lay on his back and laughed, snowflakes settling into his mouth and blowing up his nostrils. He knew a wayshed lay a quarter mile to the west, and just thinking of the warm shelter, he was soon revitalized. I'll just follow the edge of the road west, and I should find the wayshed without a problem, he said when he found the edge of the road where he'd come upon it. He turned into the blowing wind. As the road descended slowly, Kia was confident he was going toward the capital and hoped he wouldn't miss the wayshed in the dark. It was harder to stay on the edge of the road than he had thought. Between his overall weariness and his blindness in the mist and darkness, he strayed from side to side on the road. At times, stepping off into the crumbling shoulder to the north, he would find only moments later to have overcorrected and was slipping down an icy border to the south. Keo thought hours must have passed in the disorienting fog and exhaustion. He worried he had passed the wayshed in the blinding snow. The road began to climb for the first time since he had found it. Was he climbing a hill, or had he accidentally turned around and headed back the way he had come? 
Snow accumulated on the road, making each step treacherous. Keo slipped again and lay face down in the snow, his pounding heart and ragged breath revealing to him exactly how tired he was. He pulled his bundle beneath him and considered lying there until morning. He likely would have, had his knees not begun to freeze to the snow. He scrambled back to his feet and plodded forward into the wind. Keo laughed, sure it was his imagination. During short breaks in the pounding wind, he thought he saw a faint light in the distance. He walked like a scarecrow with wooden pole legs, hobbling forward, his legs barely bending from the ice crusted on his hose. Distance was deceptive in the dark and snow, and at times he thought he must have imagined the light. Puffing and wiping the snow from his eyelashes, he crested a hill, slipped once more, and slid inexorably toward twin lanterns on the front stoop of a wayshed. The promise of shelter from the storm gave him the final burst of energy to scramble to the small stone building. Someone must have lit the lamps. The shed was occupied, which could be good or bad. A traveler never knew the nature of others he met on the highway. A robber could look as simple and kind as an old man or woman. It may be a risk, but to remain out in the snow would be certain death. Would a robber light the lanterns? Keo had no idea the hour, and without knocking, he slowly pushed the door open and whispered into the dark chamber, Hello? Only a soft snoring answered his greeting. Excuse me, he said louder. The sleeper was unmoved. Keo pushed open the door enough to allow light from the door lanterns to creep into the windowless hut. Directly across from the door, a man slept on a canvas hammock slung between wooden posts, wrapped in a blanket with his back toward the door. On the wall to the right hung another such hammock, and on the wall beside where Keo stood, another. But both of these hung empty. Keo slid through the door, slipped his bundle beneath the closest empty hammock, and pushed the door closed again, sliding the wooden latch. Facing his cot, a thin line of light at eye level on the wall caught his attention. Removing his glove, he carefully reached up and touched it. He smiled and slid a small metal plate aside, revealing a square opening in the wall and the lantern outside. The small window gave the room enough light to see all within. Another man slept along the eastern wall. The floor was piled with packs and saddles between the two sleepers. In the dim light, Keo made out the curved line of a rope, one end buried somewhere in the pile, the other end tied around the far sleeping man's ankle. He hoped this meant these travelers were protecting their supplies from thieves, and not actually thieves themselves. A small stone oven glowed in the corner. With unbelievable relief, Keo slipped the no longer new boots from his feet and placed them next to the oven with his mittens. He unrolled his blanket, dumping the contents below the hammock, stripped out of his sodden clothes, and rolled into the dry side of his blanket. Before the hammock stopped swinging, he was asleep. Boy, wake up, a groveling voice said. Keel felt a light poke in his lower back. He rolled over, swinging in the hammock and almost falling from it. He righted himself, sat, and said, Sorry? 
No sorry about it, the man spoke without expression. There's fried potatoes on the stove and a bit of ham. The storm has passed and the sun's almost up. We're heading out. You'll want to eat before the food gets too cold. When it thickens, the grease gets a bit unsavory. The man pulled a pointed hat with a wide brim onto his head. The faded felt and sweat stains spoke of many years of use. From outside came the sound of horses blowing in the crisp air, and a man spoke, Here now, and there's a girl, and other phrases Keogh had used himself when saddling a horse. Here's a strap. It's a bit worn, but it should do you. Run it through your bundle and tie the ends. That way you can sling it across your back. Keogh took the thick braided strap, picturing in his mind what the man had just told him. He realized the man was leaving. Thank you, Keogh blurted. For the breakfast and the strap, you didn't need to do that. You look to be the age of those going to the capital for service, he said, touching the ragged edge of his hat in a salute. We owe comforts like these to young ones like you. The man waved his hand around, indicating the way hut, and left the room. Keo thought for a moment. He opened the door and called to the man who was just mounting his horse. I'm not going to be a civic worker. I'm going into the creature handler corps. A smile suddenly cracked the man's stony face, and the two men laughed together. Sure you are, son, and me too. You just watch now when this horse sprouts wings and we fly off to the Midland Swamps. He shook the reins, and the men, still laughing, clattered off to the east, opposite the direction of the capital. Keogh's face burned, and he scowled as he turned to the potatoes and meat waiting for him atop the stone oven. The mean breakfast was a holiday feast after having not eaten since the midday before. The small hut was warm and comfortable, and he was tempted to lie back down until the day warmed outside, but the horseman's derision still rankled him. A creature handler wouldn't waste the day dreaming, he said, and gathered his bundle. His boots had dried during the night. The leather was hard and resistant. He wished he'd worn his old boots and carried the new ones, but the additional weight in his pack had seemed like too much at the time. Adding a strap to the bundle was brilliant, leaving both his hands free. After Keo's feet readjusted to the boots and his legs remembered how to walk, the journey strolling along the highway was actually enjoyable. The sun had risen enough to warm his back, and though the day was still cold, he soon unbuttoned his cloak. Most of the snow had melted by the time he reached Offenton an hour later. He enjoyed brunch, sitting at the tavern's counter in the village inn. "'Going to the capital for service, young man?' "'Yes, ma'am,' Keogh said, and forced a smile for the tavern-keeper, and mentioned nothing about the creature corps. Around his home, everyone knew of his unusual ability, and no one doubted he would be flying a tiger-hawk, just as his older sister and brother had.' Out in the world, where he was as unknown as the next stranger passing through town, it must sound like a wild daydream to believe you'd be one of the few. What was it, he thought, 500 out of 13,000? There weren't 500 people around his home, even if you counted Peeker's village, five miles to the north. Lost in his thoughts, Keo hadn't heard the innkeeper speaking to him. I'm sorry, ma'am. What did you say? She scowled and pursed her lips for an instant, but the smile returned to her round, chubby face when she took back up her dialogue. I said, if you're going to the capital for service, we'd be happy to put you up here until the wagon comes along to take you there. 
We've not seen the first wagon of the year, and that's usually the least crowded, and should be by in a day or so. And don't you feel obligated to work. You'll be doing enough of that come the end of your training. But if you do feel like you need to be doing something, we have plenty of chores around the inn to do, and we'll give you a five-pick for every job you get done. Now that's a fair payment, don't you think? A five-pick will buy you something nice to send home to your mother, or to catch the eye of a pretty capital girl. I should know. I come from the capital when I was a girl, just like you're heading there now. The keeper had given him a hot meat sandwich, stewed turnips, and a baked spice apple. He swallowed each bite of sandwich with a drink of warm barley soup. He was used to eating a lot during the harvests, but this was still the most he'd ever eaten in one sitting, and that on top of the potatoes and ham the travelers had given him that morning. The keeper was still talking, and Keo listened with half interest, hoping to catch her taking a breath so he could stop her politely. It wasn't going to happen. She didn't appear to need air, and he cut her off again. Thank you, ma'am, but I'm going to the capital on my own. I'm walking, so that, so that if I end up as a soldier, instead of the civilian service corps, I'll be strong and fit for all the marching they do. The keeper's scowl and pursed lips appeared again, and warred with her persistent smile, until she finally sighed and nodded her head. In a maternal stance, with her hands on her hips, she said, I can't argue with that logic. Let me pack some cold meat and bread for you to carry, in case you don't reach another inn before nightfall. Astounded that the woman had stopped talking, and actually agreed with him, Keel watched her stride away to the kitchen. He wiped away the last of the gravy from the stewed turnips with his final bite of sandwich. He'd rarely eaten with anyone but family, and these new flavors, new places, and new people were thrilling and enlivening. He looked forward to the world awaiting him, filled with exciting sensations and experiences, and knew he would view it all from the back of a tiger hawk. Thank you for listening to the Pariah Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you'd like more, stop by my Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash Joe and see how you can help me produce these episodes and earn some bonuses for yourself at the same time. If you could help me out by going to iTunes and leaving a review, I'd love you for the rest of my life. Any kind of feedback to an author producer is more sustaining than food and water. If you'd like to know what else I've written, or am writing, stop by my website at norvaljoe.com or like my Facebook page at facebook.com slash Author. Philip with one L, Carol with two R's and two L's. Thank you. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.